Wednesday, March 28th, 2018, from Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I achieved a goal, a life dream, a, uh, an item on the bucket list that I didn't know I had. I didn't know I had a bucket, and I didn't know I had a list. But there I was, dreaming the dream one dares not dream. There I was, appearing on Sean Hannity last night. I had no idea I was going to appear on Sean Hannity. I did not acquiesce to appear on Sean Hannity, but just as Sean Hannity is about to appear on my show, The Gist, so too did he play a clip of me from earlier that day. I was a guest on MSNBC. I try not to plug these appearances on the show, you know, not crossing the streams. Hate when shows get too pluggy, but uh, I go on MSNBC every once in a while and they sit me down to, uh, next to like the New York Times, Brett Stevens. And they're like, Brett, you're conservative. Mike, you're whatever you are. And I say things like, oh, I think it's a really dumb idea for the Census Bureau to ask about immigration status. Well, Sean Hannity was having none of it. Here, he will uh, give you the intro to a series of clips of which I was the first. Also tonight, the California lunacy continues. That state is now set to sue the Trump administration yet again, this time over a question on the upcoming 2020 U.S. Census. Now, the census will ask non-respondents or those that want to respond, are you a U.S. citizen? That's it. Now, the California attorney general tweeted that the question is, quote, not just a bad idea, but also illegal. Mr. Attorney General, I beg to differ. Now, there was even more hysteria, of course, in the left wing, abusively biased, so-called mainstream media. And so then they cut to the tape. And it's me. I'm the first one up from MSNBC earlier in the day. What abusively biased thing do I say? What do we want from the census? We want an accurate count. Let's defer to the experts. Will this help with accuracy? It will not because people will not answer the question. You know what? How dare Sean Hannity? How dare he take my words out of context? Actually, he didn't. He didn't do that at all. That was a short clip, but I said what I said, and I meant what I said, and I'm glad it was said, and I'm kind of glad Fox viewers got to hear it. He didn't twist my words at all. I'm more confused as to why he thinks playing my words, hearing my point, bolsters his point. Bad propagandist. Bad. My bias, remember, that's uh, the abusive bias I was supposed to have, was me saying, as you heard me say, let's defer to the experts. The experts say asking about immigration status will lower the response rate and will lower the accuracy of the census. What experts? Well, yesterday on this show, I played a tape of Wilbur Ross in a congressional hearing who's in charge of the census, Commerce Secretary, agreeing that, yeah, more questions mean a lower response rate. Of course they do. Forget the specifics. Just this is an extra question, right? So Wilbur Ross is admitting that extra questions mean lower response rates. And of course, with this question, with this very sensitive question, fewer immigrants, legal and illegal, are going to respond. Everyone knows that. But like I said, like I said on MSNBC, and then was played, I don't know, to be mocked on Fox, even though I meant what I said, let's just ask experts. Let's just find people who maybe once worked for the Census Department, who their whole life is given to the goal of making an accurate census. They don't have to work there now, but let's find non-party affiliated people. Let's also screen out maybe Mike Flynn Jr. or people who are on the board at Alpha Bank or who once spoke to the Louisiana Council of Concerned Citizens. There are a couple of red flags we want to avoid, but let's just find normal chamber of commerce types. Maybe this guy will teach a class at a community college on how to do a survey. Let's just ask this person, hey, well, this idea about asking about immigration status. Will that lower the response rate? And you know what, Sean? I'll take my answer off the air. On the show today, I spiel about Trump getting tough on Russia. And he is, it doesn't really matter. But first, Kim Jong-un traveled abroad 
for his first time as leader of North Korea, went to China. Does he stamp his own passport? Did he machine gun the agent who met him at the border? All unknown. What is known is that improving North Korean relations with China in advance of the planned U.S.-North Korea summit, that is good strategy on Kim Jong-un's part, which is pretty remarkable for an unpredictable madman. So the question is, what if any pre-planning is Donald Trump doing in advance of this summit? And that is what we will hear up next. On this program, we have talked over and over again about the proposed meeting between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, and the consensus opinion about this is, let's be hopeful, talking is better than bombing, but my God, Donald Trump has to be prepared. And if Donald Trump were to be prepared, he could do worse than to ask the advice of my next guest. He is Bruce Bechtol. He's an associate professor of poli-sci at Angelo State University, has deep experience in Korea, served in Korea in the Marines, was an adjunct professor at the Korean University Graduate School of International Studies in Seoul. Hello, Professor Bechtol. Thanks for joining me. Hello, and I'm a full professor, by the way. Oh, did I say? Oh, wow. I'm reading off of, uh, I've just, yes, no <laughs> okay. problem. If you were advising Kim Jong-un, like, you're not a man of morality. You know what his, his interests are, which is self-preservation and living life as a god and all that. What arguments would you make to him? Well, here's why you might want to abandon your goal of nuclear weapons. Well, I would tell him, you know, we need to focus on our conventional capabilities. We have a big army. We can threaten the South anytime we like. And as long as we have nuclear weapons, all we're doing is garnishing attention from the international community because nobody wants us to have those weapons. We'll be far less in the spotlight if we have nuclear weapons than if we don't. So we can maintain our high military readiness posture. We can continue to proliferate things to Iran and Syria and Africa and Burma and Cuba. But if we drop out of the nuclear program, people will stop looking at us so closely. People will stop wanting to hurt our economy and endanger our survival. Oh, that's interesting. So the argument there, and people will say, well, you know, uh, Libya gave up its nuclear weapon policy, and uh, Gaddafi, I'm sure, regrets that, and Saddam really never had weapons of mass destruction. He maybe would have been better off if he had. But you're saying that North Korea is in this place, even this geographic place, where they could rain artillery shells on South Korea pretty easily and also attack North Korea fairly easily to not just allies of the West, but, you know, important states, G20 nations. And that the conventional military capacity insulates Kim Jong-un, and therefore he's not as vulnerable as one of these other dictators who did give up their nuclear weapons and barely lived to regret it. Yeah, that's what, if I was a North Korean guy on his advice, one of his advisors, I would tell him that, you know, you're not really losing anything if all you give up is nuclear weapons. You're not hurting your economy any because they spend as much as they get for their nuclear weapons. If you maintain your large conventional forces and your ballistic missiles, you haven't lost anything. But what you've gained is you've got the world off your back. And uh, as you know, uh, North Korea right now is very isolated. Um, and it's okay to be isolated in their minds, at least. It's okay to be isolated 
you know, for their people, but it's not okay to be isolated economically because they need to have somebody besides just China to rely on. And what we're putting pressure right now, much of it, is their economy outside of China, and that's legitimately hurting them. Do you think the meeting will take place in China? You know, I I think that's certainly possible. I've heard talk of Sweden as well, but it also could be held in Seoul. I've heard from some experts that the most likely place is at a house that some call the Peace House that's located right on the DMZ. Essentially, the house literally sits on both sides of the DMZ. It would be held in both North Korea and South Korea, technically. And I've heard that's the number one choice. Yeah, I remember the uh, Peace House. I visited the DMZ. Interesting fact, you know this, but I'm sure the audience doesn't. They make you wear a collared shirt to visit the DMZ. It's like a church in Italy. (laughs) (laughs) True. Yeah. So for as long as you've been paying attention, which is a long time, through the tenure of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un, have they made missteps in their acquisition of nuclear weapons just from their own self-interest? Would you say they've done anything wrong? The people who helped them with their nuclear program kind of got hoodwinked like we did with the Indians. Remember during the Dwight Eisenhower administration, I'm sure, we got the Indians with their nuclear power program going because we said that it was unlikely they would weaponize it. Well, silly us, they did it, of course. And that led to Pakistan getting support from the Chinese, and now we have this nuclear standoff in South Asia. Well, the Russians got hoodwinked the same way. They gave uh, the North Koreans, they built this reactor for them at Yongbyon. There's never been anything connected to it. It doesn't power anything up. It doesn't do anything except sit there and develop plutonium nuclear weapons. So that was a big screw-up, I would say. Um, It wasn't a screw-up on the part of the North Koreans. Kim Il-sung envisioned this nuclear program from the very beginning back in the 1960s. We've got defectors that have told us that. So this nuclear program, the North Koreans now see this, and they use this in their propaganda a lot. They now see this as a deterrent. They saw what happened to Libya. They see that countries like Pakistan, despite their behavior, remain allies of the United States, and they see that as largely because of Pakistan's nuclear weapons. And it's that mindset, um, and I'm glad you brought this up, it's that mindset going back to that that is going to make it very difficult for them to give up their nuclear weapons, which is why we need to make sure the verification process is so detailed and um, the first part of, of any actions that are taken. Let's put the fact that if a discussion between two nuclear states goes horribly wrong, it could have horrible consequences. Are there other consequences that I, as a non-expert, might not be considering if things go wrong? Could there be a withdrawal of uh, military troops, American military troops, for instance, from South Korea, without the North Koreans doing their part to, say, dismantle their nuclear program? I don't think so. I don't think that that, I mean, never say never, right? But I I think that that's a very unlikely end state for just about any scenario we could see occur. That is what the North Koreans would like to see happen. If I was the president of the United States and that was brought up at talks, I would say, well, that's way down the road for us to talk about. Remember why the American troops are on the scenario. We're not there to have a presence in Asia. We're not there to do all this other stuff that 
scholars often talk about. It's much simpler than that. We're there to deter and defend against the North Koreans. That's why we've been there since 1950, period. When there is no more North Korean threat to South Korea, when there's a unified Korea, there will be no troops on the peninsula. Why would we need them? So when the North Koreans bring that up, if they do, um, if I was advising the president, I would say to get to that end state, the North Korean army itself needs to disband and dismantle all of its offensive capabilities. They need to pull the 70% of their 1.1 million man military off of that DMZ area so they're not threatening Seoul anymore. And they need to agree that they are, on paper, that they are not going to attack their ally, South Korea. Unless or until that happens, the need for U.S. troops on the Korean Peninsula will remain. What about, uh, I've heard it argued that if the United States withdraws from the JCPOA with Iran, that will be a bad signal for negotiating on nuclear matters with the United States. Bad timings in, in terms of a possible North Korean deal. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, that that's an interesting point. Although, as, as we know, you know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, no matter what your view is, it is a fact that uh, the JCPOA was uh, was something that was only approved by a minority in the Congress. Um, it, it was extremely unpopular with a lot of people, and it froze, did not dismantle Iran's nuclear program. I think the North Koreans truly hope they could do a deal like that where, you know, tit for tat and we'll freeze our program if you Americans agree to do this and that. I'm sure the North Koreans would like to do something like that. I'm sure they know that no matter who the president of the United States is, that's just not going to happen. And the reason for that is because the last time that they froze their program for us, that was as a result of the agreed framework, they cheated. They developed another nuclear program. And then the time after that, when they actually said they were going to dismantle in 2007 and 2008, once again, they cheated when it came to verification and walked away from the talks. So I think they know that because of their unique situation that they have with us, the only way that this is going to end, if it ends at all, is with them dismantling their nuclear program. All the experts I talk to say, I hope he gets good advice. I hope he does his homework. I'm going to ask you about the who. Do you know of experts with uh, your level of expertise, people I'm sure you've served on panels with, people who are considered the best experts who would be able to communicate to the president? Do you know if uh, they are being approached? Are you confident that he is going to solicit the best advice and be able to be as informed as he needs to be for this meeting? My understanding is, because is, uh, I've been called by a couple of groups, they've got some groups in academe that are acquiring information for them, which is good. You want that viewpoint. They've got former national security folks who are now advising them from both the Clinton and Bush administrations, which I think is interesting. They've also talked with people who were involved in past talks, which I think is really interesting. So what would somebody who was involved in the past talks say to them? Mm. Yeah, this is how we failed. Right. <laughs> so so if, you, if you want to know not how to do it, listen to my story. That's basically what they can tell them. But there is there is some value to that, by the way, especially if you get someone who's not so egotistical, who's willing. I mean, just in terms of good practices for learning, learning from your mistakes is a great way to learn. 
True, but how many of those type of people do you think exist in Washington? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <They're> not, <laughs> they don't keep getting hired. <laughs> All true. Um, so, so, you know, the good thing about this is, from everything I've heard, the Trump people are getting advice from a variety of places, and that's good. And as you said, a diversity of opinions is also good. So let's hope they keep that going. He needs to take this seriously. He needs to learn from all the past mistakes that various teams on both sides of the political spectrum have made. And we need to ensure that North Korea takes real action as a result of these talks. Bruce Bechtal is a full professor of political science at Angelo State University, retired Marine, faculty at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College, many, many credentials. And also, I should plug the book, the author of North Korea and Regional Security in the Kim Jong-un era, which I'm sure will have a new preface in the paperback edition. Thank you, Professor Bechtal. Thank you, Mike. Call me anytime. And now the spiel. So Trump getting serious on the Russians, booting 60 diplomats. Oh, it happened yesterday. I know I said booting and getting, but that's all TV news vernacular. They always talk in the perma present tense. The administration reacting to a chemical weapon attack targeting a former Russian agent and his daughter in London. Booting, expelling. You know what this kind of talk is, right? Oh, that's tough talk. Uh, the Trump administration abruptly changed course on Russia today, getting tough with this announcement that Russian diplomats will be expelled from the U.S. But the- CNN and a lot of news outlets talking the tough talk about Trump getting tough. And he is. Credit where credit is due. The U.S. had to do this. It tells our NATO allies we take our alliances seriously, which used to be something taken for granted. Now it's good that we actually say it out loud. It's a fine action. It's a proper action. It's serious enough. Putin will pay a bit of a price, but he knew he would. And the Russians will respond. So the United States intel gathering will be diminished. Our capacities will be degraded. So will theirs. But what does having good intel on Russia mean What does knowing what they're planning or what their methods are, what does that all amount to if we're not going to do anything about it? What Russia does as a country really doesn't affect Trump. He doesn't care. He'd be happy enough to let it go. Or if McMaster or now Bolton is in his ear saying we got to do something, he'll respond. That's fine. On the upside, I could at least look tough. I like looking tough. On the downside, maybe I'll piss off Putin, but it really doesn't matter because on the important things, he knows he's not going to piss off Putin. The Russians did not poison Trump. The Russians invaded Crimea, not Trump Tower. Fine, whatever, not Trump's problem. The Russians haven't done anything that's affected Trump, except they did help him win the election. And when it comes to that, that part, the election meddling, fiddling, That is always the stuff that he doesn't go after. That is how being a transactional president works. You are self-centered. It makes you very susceptible to flattery. It even makes you susceptible to flattery. That isn't flattery, but the result of a bad translation. Putin called Trump yarky, which means something close to interesting. He was told it meant brilliant or genius. So it really means, well, that's a yarky blouse you're wearing with that hat, Mildred. He thinks it means genius or brilliant, and now he's decided that's what he was called. 
So Trump has not lashed out at Putin personally. In fact, he congratulated him on the big win. Hey, I know how hard it is, Vladimir, and you didn't even have any outside agitators drumming up anti-immigration protests in your country to help you out. Must have been extra hard. But here's how to look at the expulsions. The Russians expected them. They knew the cost. Like the Mossad or sometimes the CIA, they know that it's worth giving the signal when they kill someone, even extrajudicially, They know they're going to get smacked down a little bit in the international community. They've weighed the costs, and they figured the costs are worth it. And that's exactly the calculation that the Russians are making. And there was always a possibility that Trump was going to leave the UK and the NATO allies out to dry, and that would even be a bonus on top of this calculation the Russians have made that it is worth some number of diplomatic expulsions to get this rogue former agent. And the important thing is that the American administration is not doing anything to go after Russian capacities to affect elections. And that is one of the two dividends that the Russian election fixing played. There's an unspent $120 million in the State Department. There's a lack of urgency in the intel community that's directed by the president. There is the clear signal that we don't really care when it comes to screwing with our democracy again. And why wouldn't the Russians do it? It's fun and easy. Ooh, Robert Mueller indicted some people who will never come within his jurisdiction. Ooh, well, in that case, I'm going to shove my Robert Mueller nesting doll inside my Carter Page nesting doll, even though it was clearly meant to work the other way around. That'll teach him. The sanctions, the expulsions, don't mean that Trump's nature has changed. They don't mean Putin is going to be stopped or thwarted. The infuriating thing about Putin is not that he's this insane menace who can't be stopped. It's that he's really not that much of a threat. He's only a threat if you do nothing about him. He's the mumps. You know, from 2001 to 2008, there were an average of 265 cases of mumps a year. It was an outbreak a little later, thanks anti-vaxxers. But if you do nothing, if you refuse to vaccinate, if you concoct a crazy conspiracy theory about vaccination, that's when it becomes a problem. If you do this simple, tried and true and tested thing, like get the vaccination, mumps and Putin can't hurt you. But doing nothing and refusing to vaccinate and inventing a conspiracy theory, that represents inaction, dishonesty, and wild conspiracy theories. And those are also vices that can affect presidential administrations, of course. Putin's a nuisance. Putin's a problem. But if we care to protect ourselves, it's really not that hard. For the people of Ukraine, it's hard. For political opponents within Russia, it's hard. But the ability of Putin to negatively affect the lives of Americans, that really should be close to nil. If we cared, I mean, we care enough to end the diplomatic status of 60 Russians, but I can think of one man in Washington who doesn't care enough to end the denial of what the Russians are actually doing. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname. He has unsubscribed to 60 email lists, and now he's kind of wondering what the Dragon Ball Z community is up to. Daniel Schrader helped produce today's show. He got tough with his iPod, and he kicked out 60 of the worst-performing songs. And then he said, what the hell, and he kicked out his whole iPod. Why does he have an iPod? Mary Wilson, just senior producer, leaned over to Daniel and said, you know, if you don't want that song by Shalimar, I'll take it. You know, the second time around. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, kicked out 60 of the most troublesome Slate podcasts. Now our entire feed is just season two of Cop Rock Spoiler Specials. I don't even think the timing works out with that, technology-wise. The gist, 
hoping to appear on Rush Limbaugh tomorrow and Alex Jones on Friday. Please book me. I'm a man! Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.